0: Well good morning, everyone. It is wonderful to see you here today at the Vista. If we have not met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. If you're joining us for the first time, or maybe just the first time in a really long time, maybe the first time at church in a really long time. We are so glad that you joined us. We hope that you feel loved and welcomed and wanted, that you fit right in and make yourself at home here today at the Vista. Now, last Sunday, we wrapped up our three-month-long journey through the very wild and weird book known as Revelation. And Sarah Hammond did a wonderful job wrapping up the series, didn't she? Sarah's a great preacher. It's great to hear from her. Yeah. she did a very good job. And so uh, seeing as how we kind of, you know, have summited the biblical equivalent of Mount Everest and getting done with that Revelation series, I, I thought it would, might be nice for us to all just kind of take a deep breath together, pause a little bit before we launch into something new, launch into a new series. And so today's going to be more of a standalone kind of sermon that syncs up very closely with a very important day on the church calendar. And I want to start with with a story that I find interesting and then a response to this story that I find very, very interesting. So here's the story. It's a few years ago, uh, probably like six six or so years ago, the Wall Street Journal published a piece about twin boys named Brad and Chad Jones. I don't know why parents with twins always give them names that sound the same. It seems like it'd be more confusing to me, but that's not part of the story. Um, Sorry, these twin boys, they grew up in North Carolina, rural North Carolina, very devout, boys of very devout Baptist parents. And growing up as devout Baptist boys, they grew up doing the things that devout Baptist boys do. Namely, you know, Sunday school, vacation Bible school, Bible memory verses, a lot of Bible, if you haven't picked up on it. I grew up mostly Southern Baptist, so I can relate. Some Awana, maybe some evangelism training. you were Baptist? Oh yeah, you did some of this. You know what I'm talking about. And it was a good, warm, biblical upbringing. You know, nothing in particular to complain about. But then something happened. When they were around 12 years old, they went to a Catholic church with their uncle for the very first time. It was a very different experience for them, you know, because the, the building was different. Decorations were different. The architecture of the space was different because at the center of a, of a Baptist worship space, there's what? That big old wooden pulpit, right? You know what I'm talking about? Very big. you got to be very tall to see over it. Which, of course, communicates that the most important thing that happens in a Baptist worship space is what? It's it's the preaching. That's why you get that big old long sermon still probably being preached, you know, somewhere right now. That sermon you heard when you were little, it's still being preached right now. Now, this is very different than, let's say, a a Catholic worship space. Because in a Catholic worship space, at the very center of it, there's what? The altar at the communion table, Eucharist, which, of course, communicates that... Communion, the Lord's Supper, it's it's the most important thing that happens in that space. And then of course, the services are staggered very different. They're structured very different. The time is spent very different because instead of a big, huge sermon preached behind a big, huge wooden pulpit like you would get in a Baptist church, in a Catholic church, you have what? Well, got a much shorter time of preaching, just kind of biblical reflection known as a homily. Then you get this much longer extended time of communion. That's what that big old altar in the center of the room is for. And when those Baptist boys walked out of the Catholic church that day, something very important had happened. They'd started a journey away from their Baptist upbringing. That would result eventually, and them both being pastors, but neither of them Baptist pastors. Right? One became an Anglican bishop. Here's a picture of him from the article. And the other became a Catholic priest. I think that's an interesting story. You know, Two twin Baptist boys. We've got a few seats up here, Navarro's, if you need some. Just stand back there. Uh, it's so fun to embarrass your friends when they walk into church late. Oh, yeah. There he is. Right in the front here. There you go. There you go. I've been waiting to do that for a long time. That's a lot of fun. <laughs> They, they toilet-papered my house about two months ago, and so that was very, the Lord teed that one up. Um, mm-hmm, yep. Won't he do it? Um, so these two twin Baptist boys, they girls become uh, an Anglican bishop and a Catholic priest. I think that's interesting. Then the very important story, in my opinion, came in the form of the uh, response that this Wall Street Journal story elicited from a very prominent Southern Baptist. Uh, Al Muller is the president of the Southern uh, Theological Seminary in Louisville. He's been in that role for about 30 years. And as a deeply committed Southern Baptist, Muller was very bothered by this story because he felt it represented a failure of the Southern Baptist church in which these twin boys grew up. Here's what he said. So this story appears as judgment and as challenge to every single one of us, as pastors, as parents, as youth leaders, as those who care about the perpetuation of the faith once delivered for all the saints. If we do not ground our children in the faith, then they're going to find the answers to their questions elsewhere. The story of these two identical twins can be replicated thousands and thousands of times over, and it surely will be if we fail now in the responsibility to raise up the next generation in the faith to defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Hmm. So what do you think? It's two Baptist boys growing up to become an Anglican bishop and a Catholic priest. A bad thing. A failure to pass on the faith once for all delivered to the saints? Or is it more of a, it's like a neutral thing. Or maybe in the case of these two boys, was it a good thing? Take that question, we'll sit over here to the side and we'll let it, we'll let it steep, let it simmer, let it smoke, whatever your metaphor is. And, uh. We'll jump into our big idea for today. So as some of you are probably aware, this coming Tuesday, November the 1st, is All Saints Day. It's always the first day of November. All Saints Day is this day on the church calendar with a very deep history that stretches back to at least the 4th century. It uh, started as a feast day wherein the early churches would celebrate and commemorate the martyrs, these Christians who had been murdered because of their faith, killed because of their faith gradually expanded a little bit to not just be about the martyrs, but to also include the saints, Christians who had lived lives of exceptional holiness. Now, over the years, it's continued to kind of expand and be democratized so that All Saints Day in its current form is really this commemoration and and celebration of, well, all the saints, all the Christians who have ever lived throughout space and time. And I love All Saints Day, it's a very important day. If you're a Christian, it should be as important to you as Thanksgiving, as July 4, as whatever, like more important than those things because it is a reminder that we are not the only Christians. I know that can be kind of shocking, right? This isn't all the Christians in this room today, believe it or not. And it's a reminder that the only reason we are able to be Christians is because there are Christians who came before us, right? That's the only reason you and me are able to be here today. And it's a reminder that as hard as it can be to believe, because we all do like to believe that surely we are the finale, because surely history will end with us, because how could history improve upon us? No, we most certainly will not be the last Christians. And so on All Saints Day, we remember that Christ has bound all of us saints together in this unity that transcends space and time. And yet Christ has also bound us together with this Diversity that is as limitless as this big old universe of ours. And that brings us to our text for today. We'll be in Ephesians 4. If you've got your Bibles, grab them. Be on here on the screen as well. I gotta tell you, when I flipped to Ephesians instead of Revelation study this week, it was very happy. So glad not be reading about giant red dragons and the whore of Babylon. So Ephesians 4, you'll actually be able to understand it. It'll be great. Verses 1 through 7, then we'll jump ahead to verse 11. Paul says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another and love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, there is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. We'll jump ahead to verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping up of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, mature woman, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Okay, Ephesians 4, more or less 1 through 16. So our passage begins with one of the more... You know, inconspicuously important words in all the Bible. The word is therefore. Now, you've probably unconsciously noticed when you read the Bible that the word therefore often signals this link between God's actions and our actions. So all throughout Scripture, we have this pattern where we'll be told that God did something. And then because of that, therefore, there's this something that we should do. One of the best examples is Jesus gave his life for us. Therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for each other. That's what we got going on in this text for today. Because Paul has just finished telling us about all this stuff that God has done in Christ. Now, specifically, Paul is talking about the way uh, God has brought Jews and Gentiles together in a common family, through a common faith and a common body called the church, through the crucified and resurrected body of Jesus. Paul is always talking about this in one way, shape, or form. And so having said that, Paul now busts out the therefore in order to remind them that God's action for us always demands a reaction in us. And so Paul says, therefore... Therefore, because God has brought Jews and Gentiles together in this common faith through a common family, common body called the church, through Jesus' body, therefore, you need to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. This is a very stern sentence, isn't it? It's a very stern sentence. Because it's a reminder, it's an assertion that you don't get to just make your calling up. Because there is a standard that has been set, and you don't get to make it up. Rather, you have to submit to the standard that has been set. Any of you watch Hard Knocks, HBO? Any Hard Knocks fans? Just me and Michael Allen, cool. Well, it's a great show. Uh, It's a documentary where this crew basically follows an NFL team through the first two weeks of its training camp as they're getting ready for the season, and it is rough, and it is brutal. But one of the things I love about the show is how refreshing it is to watch adult human beings communicate, because it rarely happens with complete candor and directness. You know what I'm talking about? Because, y'all, the competition is so fierce. Everybody wants to make an NFL roster and there's so few spots the competition is so fierce that nobody can few, can 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 uh, you know allow themselves to like mince words or be nicey nicey with each other or take shortcuts because everybody's job is always on the line they're all millionaires nobody cares nobody cares if you're a millionaire because there's a standard and if you don't meet the standard bye bye you are gone doesn't matter how rich you are they're all millionaires they're all big names if you don't meet the standard you are gone because there's a standard and you don't get to make it up. You gotta meet it, you gotta submit to the standard. I had a kid on my t-ball team one time. <laughs> Not the kid of any parent here. This was like three years ago. And the kid was a very sweet kid and he always wanted to play first base. And I understand that, there's a lot of action over at first base. And I would have loved to let the dude play first base, but there was this one very big problem. Uh, Kid couldn't catch. <laughs> Could, couldn't catch a, a baseball with a trapeze net. You know, it just wasn't wasn't gonna happen. And so I kept coming up with excuses for why he couldn't play first base. We're like, Coach, can I play first base? I'm like, no, man, you can't. Why not? Uh, there's a skunk who lives under first base. A skunk? I've never. I know he only comes out when you play first base. So we can't have him sting up the whole field. So get out there in right field, man. Okay, take this. Now eventually I realized, man, I needed to man up, face this five year old. Shoot him straight. So, next time he asked me if he could play first base, I was ready. I said, Hey, coach can't play first base. Okay, listen, my man. Coach's gonna have to shoot you straight. There's not a skunk under first base. "Ah, There's not, so I can fight. Nope, but you still can't play first base because you can't catch. He had the exact same response. It's complete silence. So if I put you on first base, the other kids are going to be firing baseballs off your forehead all game long. And I'm worried about your future. I don't think it's in baseball. So I think you may need that head at some point. And so I can't let you play first base, man. You know, I know. He did a little bit of that. You know what this kid did? He didn't cry. He didn't complain. He went home and he worked. And he put in that work when nobody's watching. And he kind of learned how to catch. And so we put him at first base. And he got somebody out at some point. It was amazing. The heavens part of the Red Sea part because they're just standard right? And you don't get to make it up. You got to submit to it. There are standards you got to submit to. You don't get to make them up. And so Paul reminds the Ephesians that God's action in Christ demands a reaction in us, a reaction in which we walk worthy of the standard and the calling by which we have been called. And this is a really interesting thing because Paul, right? Paul's got this reputation. Paul is a very stern dude. He is. But one of the things that's so interesting about Paul in general, and then his, his word here in particular, is that Paul is demanding, but he's demanding about being gentle. Did you notice that? He's stern, he's so stern. But he's stern about being humble. Paul says, look, there, there's this, this call that you've received and you don't get to make it up. There's a standard, you submit to it. You don't make it up. You walk in a manner worthy of it. How do you do that? Well, by being humble and gentle and patient. That's the standard. Humility, oh, this often invoked but very poorly understood concept, isn't it? Because humility is not thinking you're the worst. It's not thinking that everybody's better than you. Nor is it that weird kind of false humility where people just can't take a compliment, they pretend like they're not good at things they're good at, you know what I'm talking about? They're like, hey man, great hit. Oh no, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. No man, Jesus Christ didn't hit that baseball. You hit it, just receive the compliment. I'm not trying to build a golden calf to you here. Just trying to say it was a good hit. So it's not that. And so in contrast to these imposters, real humility in this specific usage is understanding how profoundly and hilariously limited your perspective is. Because listen, you're a creature, you're a creation of Almighty God. You have been created in the image of God, which means there is a sense in which it is almost not possible for you to think too highly of yourself, right? You're a creature with an unimaginable dignity and an eternal destiny, right? Turn to the person beside you, just give them some knuckles, just say, hey man, you got it going on. Seriously, tell them, you've been created in God's image. Oh my, God! look at all these creatures created in God's image gathered in this room today, it's unbelievable. You all got it going on, but be that as it may, you are still a creature who is so hilariously little. Do you know how little you are? I mean, so many of us, we we think we like basically see the whole picture, isn't that hilarious? When in reality, all of us, we're walking around staring at this infinite universe through a teeny, tiny pinhole, that's what all you're doing this morning, that's what I'm doing. And so we lack the ability to see how little we actually see. You have been around for the blink of an eye. You will be gone in the blink of an eye. And once you learn how to embrace how hilariously limited your perspective is, y'all, humility becomes the most natural thing imaginable for you. This is why all the smartest, wisest people I know are just naturally humble. They don't have to try because once you know some things, one of the things you know is how little you know. That's why it's always the dumbest people who are very arrogant. They don't even know enough to know how much they don't know. (laughs) Next up, we have gentleness. That's a virtue Paul talks about a lot. And then after that, we have patience. Patience. Uh, The great early Christian preacher, he's probably the best early Christian preacher. His name was John Chrysostom. He defined a patient person as a person who has a wide and a big soul. I love that. It's a person who has this largesse of spirit where they're always trying to make room for others instead of always trying to push other people out. Isn't that good? It means being long-tempered instead of short-tempered. And so Paul tells us that us walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called, it means we walk with humility, we walk with gentleness, we walk with patience, but then after zooming in on those three virtues, he zooms back out to help us see the big picture that he's painting, and here's the big picture. In one of the finest rhetorical flourishes in all of Scripture, Paul says, look, there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And I want you to notice how confidently declarative Paul is here. Did you notice that? Because notice, Paul's not like, you know, wishing. He's not hoping. He's not wishing upon a star that we could all just get it together Get over our differences and work to achieve some unity. Create some oneness. Right, no, because Paul doesn't wistfully say, I sure wish there could be one body, one Lord, one spirit, one faith, one baptism. No, rather Paul declares, hey, I'm not asking. I'm telling you. There is. Not I wish there would be. There is. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all who is over all and through all and in all because our unity is not something that Paul is begging us to achieve. Rather, our unity is something that Paul is admonishing us to accept because our unity is not a request. It's a fact. It's not a request. Paul's not begging us to do it. Paul's saying, look, uh, regardless of how you feel, what you think, how you act, I am telling you that God in Christ has made you one. There is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all and through all. And it doesn't depend upon you. It just is. It's the standard. We could spend a lot of time on that. Gotta make sure that you're in a small group so that you can discuss it more later. But today, I, I wanna to move on to what Paul next moves on to because even though it initially feels like a little bit of a curveball, I think you'll see how organically it flows from what Paul's been saying. Namely, Christ binds us in unity with diversity. Christ binds us in unity, yes, but how does he do it? Well, he does it with diversity. So right after this big rhetorical flourish about unity, Paul shifts rather abruptly into talking about diversity. In verse 7, he says that while there's just one faith, that one faith is handed out to each of us in very different ways, by means of different gifts, Different graces. Verse 11, he elaborates and he talks about how this one body of Christ is constituted by an enormous diversity of parts. Enormous diversity of persons who walk into the room today bearing all these different gifts, experiences, callings. There are apostles, there are prophets, there are evangelists, there are pastors, there are teachers, and we might add, There are therapists, thank God. There are therapists, there are truck drivers, there are stay-at-home moms and dads because while we're united in Christ, we have also been designed by Christ to be different. And of course, most importantly, our diversity is designed to be a source of our unity and not our division. To put it as plainly as I know how, God made us different because God wanted to make us us need each other right? Because why didn't God create a world that was exclusively filled with, you know, analysts and accountants? Why didn't God do that? Well, you know why? Because math is boring. We're grateful God made boring people to do the boring stuff, I mean. I mean, can you imagine how terrible a world that would be? But now, conversely, Why didn't God create a world that was exclusively filled with, like, poets and and musicians and painters? Well, because self-expression gone wild is every bit as boring as math, only it is much more depressing. Can you imagine how awful that world would be? We would never get anything done. And so we don't need a world filled with either all accountants or all poets. We need a world filled with both. And so God creates this diverse world, and he hands out gifts diversely to different people so that nobody has everything so that everybody needs somebody. Nobody gets everything, nobody. Because God wants to make everybody need somebody. Me need you, you need me, on and on it goes. I probably don't need to tell you that um, far too often, and really quite tragically, our God-designed diversity has the exact opposite effect, doesn't it? And instead of binding us together in this humble, grateful, cheerful unity, our diversity divides us. And you know what it looks like? How dare they? How dare they not think like you, act like you, believe like you, feel like you, vote like you, how dare they? Well, they dare. Because God right? They dare because God. Because God, dare I say, dare as Paul said, in many cases, has designed them that way. But instead of lingering further on our individual differences, we could riff on that all day long. uh, What I want to do today is move on to zoom back out to our theme this morning, which is All Saints Day and all the Christians spread out across space and time. So let's go back to our story here. It's it's cooked up nice. Now, what do you think? It's too Twin Baptist boys becoming an Anglican bishop and a Catholic priest. A bad thing. A failure to pass on the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Well, it seems to me, again, this is just Austin peering from his tiny little pinhole. That's all I can do. It seems to me that this would only be a bad thing if you thought that the faith, capital T, capital F, once and for all delivered to all the saints was an exclusively Southern Baptist faith, right? And we don't need to pick on the Southern, but you can fill that in for anything. Methodist faith, uh, Episcopal faith, Lutheran faith, whatever. The only way this will be a bad thing is if the faith that Jesus Christ handed down to his apostles 2,000 years ago was an exclusively Southern Baptist faith, which, pardon me, but seems to me to be an almost mind Numbingly arrogant and ridiculous thing to think. Really? Jesus Christ passed down the Southern Baptist faith 2,000 years ago? That's the only one that's right, really. Now, when we started VISTA, gosh, when VISTA started, I wasn't even around for 17, 18 years ago. um, We often use the descriptor non denominational. We're a non denominational church. And the intent there was to communicate that we're not rigidly tied to any single tradition. But over the years, we've, we've kind of come to terms with the ways in which this descriptor, non-denominational, can often carry with it unintentionally its, its own kind of arrogance. Because it can unintentionally communicate, you know, that like all that church history and tradition that's gone before, well, it was all wrong, and it was all misguided, and we finally figured out how to do church right here in the year of our Lord, 2006 in Central Texas. You're welcome, rest of the world. Vista Community Church finally figured it all out for you. And hopefully it goes without saying that this is hilariously arrogant, and not at all what we think or believe or want to be about. And so one of the things that we discuss in our membership class, if you haven't been to it, you should. It's called Discover the Vista. It's three weeks long. Is that instead of being a non-denominational and anti-denominational church, we really aspire to be something more like a multi-denominational church, because I mean, we've got people, y'all. I wish you could just sit in the class and hear the stories that I get to hear. We've got people from so many faith backgrounds sitting in this room today. We've got people from Baptist and Catholic and Methodist and Episcopal and Lutheran and Pentecostal and Church of Christ and Agnostic. And so, instead of expecting you to just leave your entire faith history at the door because it was all bad, no, 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 no. We want to make room for it. There's room for it here, because every tradition, every story, every history has gifts. It's got flaws too. They all do that, but they also have gifts gifts that we want to receive. Because, y'all, I don't know about you, but I want it all. I don't want that a la carte. I want the buffet, baby. (laughs) I want it all. I want the Baptist love for evangelism. Oh my God, have you ever seen Baptists do evangelism? It's wonderful. I want the Bible church love for the Bible. I want the Methodist love for social activism. I want the Catholic love for tradition. My wife grew up Episcopal. I want the Episcopal love for thoughtful liturgy. I want the Pentecostal love for charisma. I could do it without the rattlesnakes, but I want the charisma. I, I think the spirit could be up to some things that I don't understand. I don't want the rattlesnakes, but there are things there. And on All Saints Day, what we do is we we follow, every one of us, whatever river brought us here. It's a different river that brought all of us here. We follow that river back to the ocean from which it all springs. One body, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We humbly take our place beside all the saints, even those saints, especially those saints that we don't understand. And we agree with God that it's good. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. Oh, how we do not deserve to be here, but we are so grateful to be here. You're very loved creatures. And we pause, God, as we remember all Saints' Day, we remember all of our brothers and sisters spread out across space and time, many of whom we do not understand, many of whom we disagree with very deeply. And yet we remember that our unity is not something that you have like suggested or requested, it is something you have proclaimed. You have done something in Christ to unite us that transcends even our deepest disagreements. And so we just accept that that is true and we pray for our brothers and sisters all over the world today. Oh God, some of them meet in very difficult circumstances. We pray that you would give them courage, and joy, favor, faithfulness. We pray for the other churches in our community. God, we don't have to agree with them on everything because we agree with them on Jesus. So we pray that you would bless them, that you would keep them, that you would cause your face to shine upon them. And we are grateful that you have decided in your great wisdom to make us need each other. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.